You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. With your Bibles, turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We're going to be looking today at verse 30. Verse 30 really forms the conclusion of uh, the first half of John chapter 5. So we will read beginning in verse 24, and then we'll read through verse 30 together. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Let's pray together. Our Father, our desire is that today we might understand your word, and in understanding your word, that we might be more conformed to the image of Christ. We desire to be sanctified by your truth. Your word is truth. And so we pray that you would break to us today the bread of life and feed us as your people, that we might hunger and thirst after righteousness and after your word and after your truth. Do a work in our hearts, we pray, O Spirit of God, as we open up ourselves and our eyes and our minds to your word. May you illuminate us and teach us those things which are profitable for us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We have been talking about the subject of judgment for the last few weeks, sort of on and off, and we have seen how the themes of life and judgment have uh, sort of come crashing together in the last couple of verses that we looked at, verse 28 and 29 of John 5. And so our minds have been thinking on the subject of judgment, and now in verse 30, this is where Jesus concludes the first half of his discourse in John 5 by talking about the nature of his judgment and what that is going to mean. And my guess is that as as we talk about judgment, eternal judgment, eternal hell, the reality of eternal judgment and what the implications of that are and what that is like and what that means for those who are unredeemed and lost, I would guess that probably for most people sitting here, that that is something that's very disconcerting. It's uncomfortable for us. We don't like to think of people that we know, people that we love, who reject the gospel, and because they reject the gospel, will end up perishing. Or people who, however kind they might be and well-intentioned they might be, who follow after false teaching and are caught up in false religious systems and cults, that they too will be lost. And so the notion of eternal judgment is one that causes us, I think, a little bit of discomfort. That's the word I was looking for. I was going to say uncomfortableness, but that's way too many syllables for just discomfort. It causes a tremendous amount of discomfort. It's unsettling to us. We, We don't We don't readily and quickly embrace and love the idea of justice and punishment and eternal torment. And yet, it is a reality that we can't escape from Scripture, and Jesus speaks of judgment, and so it is fitting for us to take a few moments at least, I think, this morning to reflect upon what this judgment is going to be and why it is that we feel so uncomfortable about it. I think that between our postmodern mindset and 
the culture which bombards us with anything but a God-centered perspective on life and truth, and then our own sinful, limited fallenness and our finiteness of our minds, all of those things collude to make us think wrongly about justice and what it is and why it should be done. And sometimes Christians have a hard time just expressing why God should be just, and we have a hard time embracing the notion, like we read in Psalm 37, our scripture reading, that God loves justice. Why is it that God loves justice? Why is it that Jesus loves justice? And what does that mean? And how ought you and I to think about that? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. John 5, we've kind of reached a transition point, and I said this at the beginning. This is sort of the conclusion or the end of the first half of what we call the Divine Son Discourse. The Divine Son Discourse is all of the red letters that are in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 19, going through the end of the chapter. That is Jesus laying out his claims for his own deity, the, his own divinity, his equality with the Father. And Jesus begins this section, 19 through 30, the same way that he ends it. In fact, I want you to read back to back verse 19 and verse 30. Look at verse 19. Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Read verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, my, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. You see the parallel ideas? Verse 19, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. I do not act on my own, Jesus says. As I hear the Father, so I judge. As I see the Father, so I do. Those are parallel statements. He begins this section, 19 through 30, the same way that he ends it. Or I should say, he ends it the same way that he begun it. That, by the way, is a mark of a good preacher or teacher. And anybody who strives to preach or teach strives to do exactly what Jesus did. You start with your main idea or your subject, you state that, then you back it up and you prove it, and then you wrap it all up and conclude the same way that you started. You know that you're listening to a poor teacher when he starts one place, wanders through a bunch of empty fields and, and uh, canyons, and then winds up someplace that you never thought he was ever going when he got there from the beginning. Now, I point that out. Not because I do it, but I want you to see what it looks like when it's actually done well. That's what Jesus does. He starts with his an assertion of his equality with the Father and his submission to the divine will, verse 19 and 20. Then he lays out all of the proofs of his equality. I can raise from the dead whomever I want. I am the one who will judge all men. I am sovereign in all of these areas. All men will stand before me. I will say the word and all men will come before me and I will judge them and I have authority to execute and to execute that judgment. All of those are the proofs of his equality with the Father where he started and his submission to the divine will. Then in verse 30, he restates what he says in verse 19, that he is equal with the Father and yet his equality with the Father is completely submitted to the divine will. That's what verse 30 is all about. Now, after verse 30, we start on sort of a totally different track, and you're going to see it in verse 31 and following, what Jesus has done in the first half of the chapter 5, or the first half of this discourse, is lay out his claims. What he does in the last half of this discourse is he lines up his witnesses. And he says, this is, essentially he says this, this is everything I've said to you about who I am. Here's what I say about myself. But verse 31, they didn't believe what he said about himself. So Jesus then says, but here you have all of these other witnesses who are testifying the same thing. And then he pulls out the witness of John the Baptist, then the witness of the works that Jesus did, the witness that the Father gave concerning Jesus, and then the witness of Scripture itself at the end of the chapter. Those are his four witnesses. That's how the, the discourse kind of divides. Here are my claims, and here are all the proofs, all the proofs, all the people who like have testified 
the exact same thing that I'm telling you. So verse 30 sums up everything in verses 19 to 29, and that is his equality with the Father and his submission to that. And then we get to learn a few things about divine justice uh, in the process of that. A few things about his justice. What is Jesus' justice going to look like? What is his judgment going to look like when he raises people to judgment? What is that judgment going to look like? What is going to characterize his judgment? That's what we see in verse 30. So I want you to see, first of all, how he sort of wraps up his claim, states the same thing he does in verse 19. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. J.C. Ryle, 18th century commentator, says this is, this makes up some of the most difficult language in all of the Bible to interpret and to, and to understand. And here's why. From verse 19 through 29, Jesus has asserted, uh, asserted an unparalleled equality with the Father. He has made the claim to deity in every conceivable way he can to basically say to the Pharisees who were persecuting him from verse 18, here is who I am. I am nothing less than fully God. But then you get to verse 30 and Jesus said, I can do nothing of my own initiative. And you wonder, what, what does he mean he can do nothing? Is this an inability? Is this a weakness? Is he contradicting what he has just said? Certainly we can't say that he's contradicting what he's just said. But what he is describing is his own submission to the authority of the Father. Look, if Jesus is sovereign and able to raise anybody whom he wants to, and if he is sovereign and able to resurrect men at the, at the mere spoken word, if he is sovereign and able to judge and he has authority to judge all men and all men will stand before him, is the Son using his authority and his power and his sovereignty in a reckless, renegade, willy-nilly fashion? Is he out in the universe doing what he wants, accomplishing his own agenda without concern to the Father? Once he has stated his unparalleled equality with the Father, the next question would be, how does the Son use that incredible power and that incredible authority and that unparalleled equality and authority with the Father? How does he use that? Does he use it in a renegade fashion? Are the Father and the Son constantly in conflict over accomplishing the purposes? And one says, I want to do this, and the Son says, no, I want to do that. And are they constantly conflicting with one another, trying to accomplish their own agendas? Or... Does the Son who possesses all of this authority submit that to the Father and say to the Father, Your will be done. When Jesus says, I can do nothing of my own initiative, He is essentially saying, All that the Father wants me to do, I do. And everything I do is the will of the Father. And I do not will to do anything that the Father does not will me to do. So the exercise of this unparalleled authority and power the exercise of the sovereign prerogative that he has just claimed right to is used in complete harmony with the will of the Father and the will of the Spirit in perfect harmony together. So when he says, I can do nothing of my own initiative, he is not admitting a weakness. Anymore, when we say that God cannot do something, are we saying that God is weak? Are there things that God cannot do? There are lots of things that God cannot do. God cannot deny himself. God cannot lie. God cannot break His Word. God cannot go against His own character and His nature. God cannot countenance evil. He cannot bless evil. There are a lot of things that God cannot do. But when we say that God cannot do these things, we're not saying that God is weak, that it is because of a lack of power. Rather, God's inability to do those things are His very strengths. God is strong. It is the perfection of His strength and the perfection of His glory that makes God unable to break His Word. That's not a weakness. We don't say, oh, God is unable to break His Word, therefore He must be weak. 
Because if he was truly strong and mighty, he would break his word. Not so. It is the perfection of his glory and the perfection of his nature that makes him unable to do those things. That's the same thing with Jesus. It is due to the perfection of his glory and the perfection of his character and nature. The perfection of his attributes that makes him unable to do anything apart from the Father. That is a mark of strength, not of weakness. Do you consider it a strength in yourself that you are able to go against the revealed will of the Father, the moral will of the Father, and sin? Do you look at your own ability to sin and transgress the law of God as a strength? No. That's a weakness, right? That's no virtue. That's a defect of your character. It's a defect of my character. There's a day when I long to have the defects of that character removed so that I am no longer able to go against the Father's will and that I can only do what the Lord wants then that will be a moment of strength, not of weakness. It's the same with Jesus. I cannot do this. It is not because he lacks the power. It is because it is not in accordance with his nature and he lacks the will. He does not will to do anything that the Father does not will him to do. So I can do nothing of my own initiative. In other words, all of my strength and power is subjected to and subordinate to the will of the Father so that I only do the will of the Father. And this is the quirky language, as I hear, I judge. And and the analogy and the point and the and the... The whole goal of that statement is simply to say, it's actually to create a picture in our mind. And here's the picture. That as Jesus is executing the judgment he has described in verse 28 and 29, as he is executing that judgment, it is almost as if the Father is standing right beside him, telling him exactly what to do. So that at no point and no time is the Son ever out of sync with the will, the revealed will and character of the Father. Everything that I hear from the Father, I do. Buck in verse 19 and 20, Jesus said, everything I see from the Father, I do. So Jesus is simply restating in separate language what he said in verse 19 and 20, and that is, all that the Father shows me, all that the Father gives to me, I do entirely his will and only his will. So that is a character. It's his strength that he is unable to do those things, not a weakness. Verse 30, as I hear, I judge. And now Jesus is going to give three characteristics of his judgment. My judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Here are three characteristics of the judgment and the justice of Jesus. Number one, he executes the Father's judgment on behalf of the Father. The execution of the judgment of the Son is actually the execution of the Father's judgment on behalf of the Father by the Son. Do you remember back in verse 22, Jesus said, Not even the Father judges anybody, but he has given all judgment to the Son. The one who will judge the world is none other than the Son. It is Jesus who will, on behalf of the Father and the Spirit, be the visible representation of God as judge. So that in Revelation 20, when all men stand before Him from whom whose presence heaven and earth flee away, they will be standing before Jesus, Son of Joseph of Nazareth, in glorified form, the one who is the God-man. They will stand before Jesus, and Jesus will execute all of the Father's judgment on behalf of the Father and on behalf of the Spirit, all that judgment has been given to the Son. He is the one who executes all of that judgment. Now I ask you this. Do you have room in your theology for a Jesus who is the judge of all men? Do you have room in your theology for a Jesus who is the judge of all men? If you're like me, you probably know a lot of Christians who they only have room in their theology for the Jesus who's bouncing little children on his knee and refuses to condemn the adulteress in John 8. And they got to twist John 8 to come up with that conclusion, but that's their perspective of Jesus. They have no room for Jesus who cleansed the temple, confronted hypocrisy, called out the self-righteous, condemned sin in its every form. 
uh, not slandered, that's the wrong word, but blasted the false teachers of his day and the wolves in sheep's clothing. They have no room for a Jesus who does that. They have no room for a Jesus who is coming back with a sword to tread out the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God in Revelation chapter 19. They have no room for a Jesus who is going to crush all of the kingdoms and make all of the kingdoms and the nations of this earth and all of its peoples belong to Him. They have no room for that Jesus. The Jesus with lots of lugs and uh, love and hugs and kisses, that's the Jesus they want. But they don't have room in their theology for a Jesus who executes God's judgment. Do you? Do you? Do you think that Jesus is any less indignant toward human sin than the Father is? Is Jesus more compassionate than the Father is? More loving? More compassionate? More kind than the Father? Or is Jesus less judgmental and less righteous, less holy, less just, less righteously indignant toward human sin than the Father? He is not. To read the Old Testament, we see the Father... We see God as being a just God from the Old Testament. And we read things like Psalm 37 where it says God loves justice and He delights in doing justice. Those things are His delight. And we see on almost every page of the Old Testament God's righteous indignation towards sin and how God treats sin and how God views sin and what God has had to do to overcome sin. And we think, well, that's the Father. But aren't we glad we worship Jesus? Because Jesus is loving and kind and He's approachable. And we can come to Jesus and He sort of shields us from the Father. Just a second, do you think Jesus is less holy and less righteously indignant than the Father? If he, if that's your view of Jesus, you have a different Trinitarian theology than biblical Trinitarian theology. Because Jesus longs to do the entire will of the Father. So that when He judges people, He's not going to do it reluctantly. He's not going to sit on the great white throne and wring His hands and say, Oh, I hate to do this, but the Father is making me do this. That's not Jesus. When He judges men... He will execute perfectly the full justice of the Godhead upon men, and it will be a just day of reckoning. He is just as angry towards sinners as the Father is angry towards sinners. You say, but Jim, 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 what about the cross? That's love. The cross is love. I see the cross. I think love. I think love. I see the cross. Isn't the cross the greatest demonstration of love that the world has ever seen and known? I would say it is, but listen... The cross is also the greatest demonstration of the justice of God that the world has ever known. Do you want to see God's just wrath upon sin? You look at the cross. When I see the cross, I see the justice of God and the love of God in one picture. So that the cross is the vindication of God's justice. So that because of the cross, when all of His wrath was poured out in justice upon His Son... Justice was done, not just love, but justice was done on the Son for me and for you. So that the cross is the vindication of God's justice. The cross stands for God's justice. The cross is God's justice. It's not just God's love. And the Son knew that. That way God could be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that when we place our faith in Christ, we are saying, justice has been done on my behalf. My sin has been punished on Christ. That's justice. The cross is the justice of God. So the Son will execute the justice of God on behalf of the Father and the Spirit, and the justice that the Son executes is the will of the Father, and He is just as righteously indignant towards sin as the Father is. The second mark of the justice of the Son is that the justice of Jesus is a just judgment. It's a just judgment. That's almost redundant, isn't it? Because judgment really is not judgment if it's not just. 
If judgment is unjust, it's really just vindictiveness. It is the justness of something that makes it actually judgment. Because it's not judgment if it's not just. So every time you read in the Old Testament about an act of God's judgment, and I think of, um, oh, is it Uzzah? The one who touched the ark? The name escaped me. Do you remember when David was carrying the ark back and he put it up on a cart pulled by an ox instead of holding it on the poles like he should have, and it tottered a little bit, and the guy reached out his hand to steady the ark, and God struck him dead just like that? Was that Uzzah? Nobody knows. I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to know this stuff. I look at that, and we had this discussion in our family just recently, and my kids said, that just seems so wrong for God to do that, to strike down a man who was just trying to steady the ark. Was that just a whimsical, capricious, vindictive vendetta by God who didn't want fingerprints on his ark? Or was there an element of justice to that act? It was the judgment of God, temporally, in this earth, striking down somebody who dared to touch something that's holy. And listen, if you have a problem with it, if you have a problem with that action, I will tell you this. Uzzah's sin was not just because he reacted to something and wanted to keep something from tipping over. Uzzah's sin was that he thought his hands were purer than that ark. That his hands were purer than the dirt which God had made, which had never sinned against him. That was Uzzah's presumption. He touched with unholy hands something he should not have touched. And yes, he did it quickly, but that judgment, was it capricious? Was it whimsical? Was it unjust? It wasn't unjust. It was just. And it was judgment. And that's what makes judgment just. The judgment of Jesus is going to be a just judgment. In Romans chapter 1, it says that all of creation screams out the attributes of God so that the invisible things about God's nature and character are clearly seen by everybody. So you talk to an atheist, there's no such thing as a real atheist. All an atheist does is suppress the truth that he knows to be there. He knows there's a God. He knows that design means designer. He knows that creation requires a creator. He suppresses that truth and ungodliness so that he can live however he wants. He keeps that down in himself and denies what is plain and obvious, and he exchanges the truth of God for a lie, and he worships and serves the creature rather than the creator, all the while knowing in the back of his mind, in his intellect, that there is a God, and he knows it full well. And then Romans 2 says that not only does he have the witness of creation, he has the witness of conscience, so that he sins against his conscience because the law of God is written on his heart. And whether you live in a culture like ours, which has a Bible on every coffee table and in every home, and the gospel proclaimed on nearly every media outlet in the world, whether you live in a culture like that or whether you live in the farthest reaches of a jungle, the law of God is written on your hearts and the people in the jungle and the people in our culture, they know that lying is wrong. They know that murder is wrong. They know that lust is wrong. They know that fornication is wrong. They know that homosexuality is wrong. They know that all of those things are wrong and they do them anyway. And so they are condemned by creation. They are condemned by their conscience. And John 3 says they love darkness rather than light. They don't want to come to the light because the deeds will be exposed. They don't want their deeds exposed and so they cling and cower in the darkness and they hate the light and they love darkness. And so when Jesus comes back, He will execute just judgment on all of those who have heard and rejected and all of those who have not heard the name of Jesus and yet have rejected the light of creation and the light of conscience. He will execute the just judgment on them. Do you realize that people do not go to hell because they have never heard the name of Jesus? You realize that, don't you? People do not go to hell simply because they have not believed in the name of Jesus. It's the wrong way to frame it. That's the way that Rob Bell likes to frame it. You listen to the interviews with Rob Bell, who wrote the book Love Wins, and that's his, that's his thing. I just don't believe it's right. God would never condemn somebody to hell just simply because they have never heard the name of Jesus. 
I agree with that. That's true. God's going to condemn people to hell because they are liars and thieves and blasphemers and fornicators and adulterers and idolaters. That's the just judgment of God. They will be judged according to their deeds. Now, there is one remedy that God has put forth for men. But people are not going to be condemned to hell simply because they have not heard the name of Jesus and have not believed. They will be condemned to hell because they have rejected the light of creation and the light of conscience. And they will get the just punishment for their sin. That's why Jesus says, my judgment is just. We do not have to worry about judgment day coming and Jesus just whimsically, capriciously, without discrimination to deeds or persons or events, just pouring out a bunch of wrath and trying to satisfy his desire to get back at people. That's not going to be judgment. That's not going to be the justice of God. The justice of God is going to be executed by His Son, and it is going to be perfectly just, which means that no crime will go unpunished, and no non-crime will be punished. In other words, they're not going to be falsely accused. Nobody will be falsely accused and punished for something they did not do. They will be punished only for what they did, but no crime will be overlooked. By the way, do you realize as a believer you ought to take comfort in the justice of God? The idea of God's justice ought to comfort you if you are a believer and you are in Christ. you know why? I cling to the judgment of God, and here's why. Knowing that Christ took my punishment and that justice was poured out on Him that I deserve tells me that on the day of judgment, I never, ever need to fear the judgment and the wrath of God because God is just. In other words, He is not going to punish His Son in my place for my sin and then turn around and pour out His wrath on me too and punish two people for the same sin. If Christ bore my punishment on the cross, if He took my sin, then I am forever delivered from the judgment and the wrath of God because God will never punish me for the same things that He punished Jesus for. And so I embrace and cling to the justice of God knowing, knowing that it is the fact that He is just that delivers me from His justice because His justice has already been met and He will not exact it twice. And so He will never require it of me. So believer... You cling to the justice of God, and you know God is just, and Jesus is just. So he executes the judgment of God on behalf of the Father. Second, the justice of Jesus is a just justice, that it is perfectly right. And third, the justice of Jesus is in perfect harmony with the will of God. That's the end of verse 30. Jesus said, He did not come to seek His own will, but the will of Him who sent me. He's talking here in the context of judgment, not just about everything that he did while he was alive. That's true. That's why he could say, I can do nothing of my own initiative. Everything he did was the will of the Father. And Jesus is simply saying, everything that I do and have done is the will of the Father, and justice is part of that. So the justice that I execute is the will of the Father. And Jesus executes perfectly the will of the Father and does all of the Father's justice. Do you think Jesus is standing or sitting at the right hand of the Father and saying to himself, the Father is all about, right hand, right. The Father is all about wrath and justice. He's hung up on the justice thing. I'm all about love and I'm hung up on the love thing. And we're just trying to get together and work out our differences and accomplish our end results. Is that how you view Jesus? You might say that. No, that's not how I view Jesus. But yet practically Christians do this all the time when they think of the Father as having a different will and a different purpose and a different design and a different character and nature than the Son. But once we realize that the Son does always and only the will of the Father, then we realize that in our Trinitarian theology, whatever is true of the Father and His feelings towards something is also true of the Son and His feelings towards something. So that the Father always 
His will is always in accordance with the Son's, and the Son always does, always and only, the will of the Father. So the Father and the Son are not arguing over who to save and how to save them and why to save them. And the Son's not desperately trying to save everybody while the Father is just pulling out a few and saying, no, no, I'm only going to save a few. I I know you want to save everybody, but that's not my desire. The desire of the Father and the desire of the Son, the purpose of the Father and the purpose of the Son are in perfect harmony with one another. And that is the way that justice will be at the end of time. It is a just judgment. It is the Father's judgment that Jesus will execute. And His judgment is perfectly in harmony with the will of the Father and with the will of the Spirit. So within the Godhead, they have one will and one purpose as it pertains to justice. And Jesus is the one who does all of that will of the Father. So Jesus is the one who will see to it that all of the triune interests and purposes and plans and agenda and desires are accomplished. Jesus will, at the end of time, vindicate the triune God. He will accomplish for the glory of the Father and the Son and the Spirit all of God's purposes in the execution of His judgment so that God will be vindicated. So now I return to what I started with and I ask you, how do you feel about the judgment and justice of God? Is it something that bothers you? When I have a problem with something that God does and I say, well, it doesn't really strike me as just or right, I can guarantee you that it tells me more about me than it does about God. Because God is the standard of justice, and whatever God does is right and just. So if I have an issue with it, if I have a problem with it, I say it's not fair, it's not just, it's not right, the problem is me. And I can always bring it back to one of two things. Either I have too low a view of God, or I have too low of a view of sin. Because I know this, if I were to have God's view on who He is, then I would know that even one sin committed against that God is worthy of eternal damnation and eternal punishment of the worst sort. Just one sin. Not because a lie is in itself horrible or worth all of that, but it is the being against whom the lie is told. It is the being against whom one has sinned. So that if I were to slap, or let's say your six-year-old were to slap your Doberman pincher across the face, and then he were to turn around and to slap you across the face, Would you consider those two things morally equivalent? Would you consider slapping the dog and slapping his father worthy of the same punishment? No, you would not. It's the same action, right? And maybe even the same motive of the heart in both actions. But what is the difference? The difference is the level of the person against whom the crime is committed. That is why when we understand God is infinitely holy, infinitely righteous, infinitely perfect, and infinitely worthy of infinite obedience then one crime against him is worthy of infinite punishment because of the majesty against whom the sin is committed. So listen, friends, when when you and I sin against God, we are committing an act that is deserving of infinite and eternal punishment because of the majesty of the one against whom we have sinned. And when I fail to keep that in mind and I fail to see God as He is in truth, then suddenly I get become skewed in my perspective of judgment and justice. Or two, I don't see the horrors of sin as what they are. And I don't think that anybody in this room views sin the same way that God views sin. How do I know that? Because we still sin, and we sin when we don't even know it. Not only that, but even when we're warring against sin, we're not warring against sin as strongly as we need to, and we're not exerting enough effort, we're not shedding blood in the battle against sin. We do not see sin as it is in truth, as the hideousness of it. 
You take your most notorious, bloodletting, wicked person. Somebody notoriously wicked. Osama bin Laden, Hitler, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, a serial killer. Somebody who's notoriously wicked. You see the destruction that their lives have wrought and that what their sin has done? You see their sin and all of its horror and all that comes from it and the offense that it is to both man and God? You see all of that? I will tell you this. God, you do not even see the tip of the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. God sees all of that and so much more. We do not understand and we do not appreciate the sinfulness of sin and the horrors of it. And if we understood the majesty of the one against whom we sin and the horrible nature of sin, if we had a right view of God, as see God as God sees Him, and we see sin as God sees sin, all of the objections to eternal judgment would vanish away in a heartbeat. Are we going to know about hell and those who are tormented and lost in hell in heaven? I believe that we will. But I believe the difference will be this. We will have God's view of Him and God's view of humanity and God's view of eternity and God's view of sin and God's view of justice. And then in eternity we will sit back and say, this is perfectly just. In every nook and cranny of the universe, in all of God's creation, all of God's plan, justice has been perfectly done. So do you delight in justice? Do you delight in justice? The answer to that question should be, I hope to delight more and more in justice as I become more and more like Christ. Because if Christ loves justice, then I ought to love justice. Should I not? If I'm just like Him? Should I not be so consumed with His interest and His name that when He vindicates Himself, that we rejoice in that? Does that mean that we rejoice in the suffering of individual people? No, it does not. It does not warm my heart one bit that Osama bin Laden, killed a week ago today, is in hell right now and has been for a week. His torment, his anguish, his suffering, and the eternality of it does not warm my heart one bit. I wish he would have repented before he died. And like Saul of Tarsus have got saved. I wish that that would have happened. I would rather see him be saved than to suffer the torments. So his suffering itself does not warm my heart. But I will tell you what does warm my heart. What warms my heart is I rejoice in the fact that God has vindicated himself and he has brought an end to one man's wickedness. And he has removed that wickedness from this earth. And he is and will be forever vindicated for doing that. And that God, in all that he does in time, and all that he will do in eternity, is completely and fully just. And that in the end, evil will not triumph. His enemies will not triumph. Rebellion will not triumph. Sin will not triumph. And Satan will not triumph. But God will vindicate his name, and his glory, and his justice, and his righteousness, and his truth, and his purposes, and he will display the glory of that before all of creation. That warms my heart, not an individual's suffering. That causes me anguish, but it is anguish mixed with joy. And so that I am able to, at the same time, say, the suffering causes me anguish, the justice causes me joy. Because I want to see God's name vindicated. Now I'll tell you this, and with this I'll close. You're thankful. If at any time we say, I am so unconcerned with the nature and the glory and the vindication of God's name, that when justice is done, either here or in eternity, I grieve over that. I'm not interested in seeing God's name vindicated. I'm not interested in justice being done. I don't like the idea of justice. The problem is with us. God loves justice. Psalm 89.14, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne, and loving kindness and truth go before you. Hebrews 1.8 says the scepter of Christ in His kingdom will be a righteous scepter. 
Job 8.3 says, God does not perverse justice. He loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. In Psalm 37.28, the Lord loves justice. You and I ought to love justice. doesn't mean we love suffering, but we love the vindication of God's name. And that is what Christ will do at the final judgment. Let's pray together. Our Father, keep us in your word. We pray that you would sanctify us by these things, and there is nothing about the suffering of people that should cause us joy, but it is the vindication of your holiness and your righteousness and your truth which brings joy to your people's hearts. We pray that we may be able to strike that perfect balance between the anguish that suffering causes us when executed upon those who are impenitent and and unredeemed, and the joy that we feel in knowing that you are a God of justice and that in the end nothing will go unpunished and nothing will be punished which does not deserve it. We pray that you would give us your perspective and your insight on these things, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ and love the things which you love for the glory of your name. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.